Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au hurihuri ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. You're with our changing world on RNZ National. And now, have you ever given much thought to the little fish that make up whitebait? Did you know, for example, that whitebait is actually five different species of galaxid fish and that four of them are endangered? And like many of our native fish, they'll usually head out to sea when they're really small and then come back to streams and rivers when they're a bit bigger, which is when they get caught as whitebait. We know very little about the lives of our native fish during their first few days and weeks, but researchers at the University of Otago are trying to find out more. Alison Ballance joins Matt Jarvis and Jason Oxberger in an aquarium room in the zoology department for some fishy insights. So we have heaps and heaps of eggs from Kawara that we caught on the west coast and brought back to the aquarium here, and we've spawned them ourselves. So describe to me what kind of fish koaro are. Um, they're one of the native galaxids and part of the whitebait species. And so they're better known as the climbing galaxid. And uh, they're just sort of a little tubular fish that's sort of got a mottled appearance and really big, funny-looking fins. They can actually, with those big fins, get up quite steep waterfalls and things, can't they? Yep, yep. They're known to get up huge waterfalls and probably about some of the nastiest looking streams in terms of rapids that you can imagine. And they get up above them and then stay up there. Oh wow, and you said you brought them back and you've spawned them, so what did that take? What did you have to do to get them to obligingly produce some eggs and sperm? These ones like to spawn on floods. So we were over on the west coast during the large flood recently that flooded Franz Joseph. And we caught the koaro using an electrofisher, which sort of stuns the fish and we can catch them and sort through who's ready to spawn and who's not. So that was a pretty big flood event? Yep, yep. Pretty big even for the fish? I think these fish in particular, as well as a couple of the other species, they're just so adapted to these floods that they've evolved with them and that not only can they cope with them, but they require them. So they wait for these floods in order to spawn. And if these floods would have not happened, they probably wouldn't have that cue to reproduce. And in front of us we have some petri dishes filled with little white things. I mean, there's hundreds there, aren't they? Thousands, yeah. Thousands? <laughs> so what are you going to do with them? So I look at the size of the fish larvae and how well the fish larvae perform at swimming. So I'll hatch these eggs out and then raise the larvae out to about 28 days and look at how fast they can swim in different current conditions in hopes to figure out exactly what they're capable of, I guess. So you've been doing this with different species? I just work on this one, but I work on the marine ones on the west coast and then the landlocked ones that reside in Wanaka, Wakatipu, Pukaki, and Tekapo. These are the same species. They've just yep. ended up with these two different lifestyles. Yep, that's right. And so we're sort of looking at the link between the ones that go out to the ocean and then the ones that have just stopped migrating completely by assessing the differences between the two. Okay, so tell me a bit more about those differences. As far as we can tell, it looks like the marine ones have an egg size that's about 25% larger than those in the landlocked systems. 
So we haven't hatched them, so I'm not quite sure what the larval difference will be. But I would expect that the marine ones will hatch out quite a bit larger, which means that they should be able to swim faster and just sort of cope with the marine environment, whereas the landlocked ones are heaps smaller. But in fish, smaller eggs mean you can have more eggs. So the landlocked ones are able to have lots more babies at one time than the marine ones. So have you been working on some other fish species as well? Yeah, I, I don't work on these swimming trials, but I work on a fish called the bluegill bully, which is very similar that it, like the whitebait koaro, that it goes out to sea when it hatches and then comes back into freshwater after a few weeks or months. And I've been looking at what happens to these larvae under different temperature regimes. So the aim is to look at the potential effects of climate change. And so when these fish hatch, they have a yolk sac and they can't feed in a river that they use up that yolk to get to sea because the sea has tiny plankton that they can actually feed on. So the distance that their nests can be laid up a river is only as far as that they can drift out before they starve. And the idea is that if river temperatures warm up, then they use up their yolk faster because their metabolism increases. And then this is going to mean that they need to be laid closer to the sea or they'll all starve to death. And so I'm raising larvae, and luckily we can just go out and pick up a rock and turn it over, and you see that there's thousands of eggs underneath it. And so we put them in buckets, bring them back, and this triggers them all to hatch out, that if you disturb a rock, they'll all hatch, which we think, like these ones, it's a flood thing. And so we just bring them back and put them in um, aquariums at different temperatures and look at how quickly this yolk is used up. And it's just sort of in the early phases, but it does look like at higher temperatures that instead of lasting perhaps a week, they might only last two or three days. The difference between a week and two to three days is really significant for a little fish. Exactly, but then we don't know how quickly they get out to sea, so that's sort of the next phase is to figure out how long does it actually take that is a week, the usual time period, or do they get out within half an hour or so? And because when these things hatch, they're about two millimetres long, they're very hard to actually track. So, so how are you going to yeah. do it? <laughs> well... Luckily, fish have a, they call it an ear stone or an ear bone that is a calcifying structure which begins as soon as they hatch or before they hatch even. And it, like a tree, it gets daily growth rings. And so hopefully we can catch larvae right before they get to sea and then age them to see how many days they've actually, well, it, it deposits a ring when they hatch so we can count from hatch until we catch them and hopefully figure out how long it actually takes them to get out. So it's a little inbuilt signal you can use. It's fantastic. You can do a lot of things with them, and it's extremely handy. <laughs> so when do those ones that got swept out to see the summer, when will they turn around and come back up the rivers and streams? Um, about now, I think. So when we were up on the west coast collecting these koaro a few weeks ago, we were getting a lot of little bluegill bully that were, I think, coming back from this past breeding season. But I don't think anyone actually properly knows. There's a lot left to be found out about the early life stages of our fish. It's basically been ignored, which is why we're doing this. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's similar with all the galaxids as well, where outside of Inanga, pretty much no one knows anything about the early life history. So we look at 
where they go when they go out to sea or lakes as my stuff because the ocean's just hard to work in. So we look in the lakes and then sort of how long they're there and what the heck do they do while they're out there because no one has any idea. Can you get any kind of isotopic signature from them that might give you some indication of where they are out at sea? Yep, so people do that. And the issue with, I guess, isotopic signatures of flesh, you can tell if they've been eating stuff from freshwater food webs or marine food webs. Fortunately, the otoliths or the air stones that I was talking about before, that these also take up the chemistry of the water. As they're depositing the daily growth rings, they're taking up the surrounding ambient water chemistry as well. And so, fortunately, the chemistry of the ocean is very different than the chemistry of fresh water. And so you can use laser ablation inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. Basically, we can shoot a laser at these otoliths and then it goes through a fancy machine over in the chemistry department and it tells us, based on the strontium and the barium signatures, whether it's been in fresh water or in the marine environment. And we can get a transect across the entire life of the fish from when it hatches until when it was caught. And so you can relate that to these daily growth rings and then you can say roughly that when it hatched it was in the river, then it went out to sea for this many days and then it came back. And then also, fortunately, different areas of either a lake or the ocean have their own unique chemistries based on the catchments that drain into it or ocean currents and what have you. And so subtle differences and all sorts of other elements like rubidium and aluminium and manganese and things, you can look at the differences in these and then fish that have ideally been in the same area will group out together and you can't really tell where they've been but you know they've all been together. And at least you could see whether they're all going to more or less the same place or perhaps going yeah. to two or three different places. So that's one of the main things that we're doing because Historically, people thought that diadromous fish, which go out to sea and then come back into rivers like the whitebait and the bullies and a large proportion of New Zealand's freshwater fish, they assumed that they go out and then in the ocean, they just mix around everywhere and they go up north and down south and there's even some species that they think go to Australia or Chile and then they just all mix randomly and they come back up whichever river they happen to find. And so because we can tell who has been with who in the marine environment. If that were the case, you would expect all of these signatures would be different, but it actually turns out a lot of them, all the fish from one river will have a very similar signature, implying they've all been hanging out together when they've been in the ocean. So it doesn't seem likely that this traditional view that they are widely dispersing and mixing actually holds true for a lot of these species which has implications for how these species should be managed because if they're not going very far, then you can't rely on faraway populations to sustain the population. If you happen to ruin the reproductive capacity of one particular stream, it, it might be the only stream that's actually supporting its own population. When they started looking at it from an evolutionary perspective, sending your little four millimeter or two millimeter larvae out to the ocean to get lost and try and find fresh water to come back to seems like a pretty, I guess, futile effort at reproducing. 
So it makes more sense that these fish would kind of stay a bit closer to fresh water. And so we started looking for river plume signatures in the fish's otoliths of both marine fish and the lake landlocked populations. And I guess one of Jerry's recent students, Mana and Andy Hicks, I guess were probably the first ones to start to notice that the fish weren't actually going all too far from the rivers that they came from. And Mana found that sort of on a 100 kilometer scale or whatever, the streams closer to each other have similar signals, meaning that they mix a little, but they're mostly sort of localized recruitment or localized populations. And then the further apart you got, the more distinct the signals became, suggesting they aren't really going all that far from home when they go out to the ocean. And then I started looking in the lakes and we're finding similar patterns, but on about a five to 10 kilometer scale, opposed to hundreds of kilometers. So it looks like the white bait really might stay quite close to the rivers they've come from. But fortunately, the good thing about this result is that if you can tell a landowner or a community group or whatever that if they are to look after their own river and their own catchment, that they are going to reap the benefits, that it's not just going to get dispersed up the coast to someone else. So it is good in that regard that you can use it as ammunition to tell people if you put the money into planting tussock along the side of your stream, then you're going to get the white bait back because they're not going very far. And that was Matt Jarvis, Assistant Research Fellow in the Zoology Department at the University of Otago. And you also heard from PhD student Jason Oxburger. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.